Well, hello there and good evening and welcome to the Jim Bohannon Show from Westwood One Radio. We're at 1-866-50-JIMBO, 1-866-505-4626. Online you'll find us at jimbotalk.net. Good to have you with us on the program tonight. As White House correspondent Nora O'Donnell previews some of the possible initiatives to be included in President Obama's upcoming jobs plan set to be announced next week. The president says his number one priority is jobs and the economy. But just days before he is set to deliver this major speech, advisors admit that the plan is still not finalized. Now, President Obama has said that he's going to lay out a series of steps that Congress can take immediately and that his plan will include some bipartisan ideas. But remember that the Republican-ruled House of Representatives has so far been unwilling to work with the president on his past job initiatives. Now, I talked to a number of officials who say that the president's new plan is going to include a mix of both old and new proposals, including a major project to refurbish and renovate schools at a cost of up to $50 billion, an extension of payroll tax cuts and jobless benefits cost $175 billion, and new incentives for businesses to grow their workforce with up to $5,000 per person tax credits for each new hire. This is a plan that some economists think could add hundreds of thousands of jobs, the cost about $30 billion. I should also note that the president is getting a lot of pressure from liberals in his own party who want him to go big with billions of dollars in additional stimulus. That is not likely. Instead, a senior advisor tells me that the president's new plan on jobs will be paid for with additional deficit reduction. Nora O'Donnell with that report. As uh, Congress returns to town on uh, Wednesday the 7th, and uh, in other words, uh, the government is getting set to again uh, hit the deck, if it not, uh, not running, and then at least maybe uh, scrolling. We'll find out more as we talk in this portion of the program with John Hayward, staff writer at humanevents.com. Good to have you with us tonight, John. Thanks very much for having me. Tell me a bit more about this, uh, this presidential jobs plan that we are told is still sort of in the works. Well, it's interesting that it would still be in the works since it's been a couple of years now. And by a strict count, this would be the 16th pivot to job creation that the president has made. There are 15 previous occasions where he's loudly announced he was going to focus on jobs now. This is number 16. So you would think after 15 tries, he'd have a pretty good plan worked out. But so far, it seems like it's still under construction. And How much of this is – yeah, go ahead. It seems like a lot of the same things, too. For example, one of the centerpieces here is this payroll tax credit for hiring people, which can have some benefit, although that sounds like a pretty big price tag there, $30 billion for this. But it's it's not really a good job stimulus because businesses don't hire people to earn a tax credit. Employment is a long-term relationship. Handing out tax credits to spur employment is like giving a subsidy for wedding rings and expecting a spike in marriages. It just doesn't really work that way, not to the extent that they think it will. How much of this is in response to the divisions that exist, uh, well, in our government, of course, since we've been voting the straight paralysis ticket, electing him, a slightly Democratic Senate and a fairly Republican House, uh, plus the fact that uh, his own party is somewhat split on just what he should do. How much of this, uh, this indecision is a reflection of the political realities? 
Well, there's there's certainly a large bipartisan constituency in Washington for spending money. It's it's not really hard to get people excited about that. They just have different ideas of what they want to do with the money. Their problem is that outside of Washington, there's this growing and powerful movement among the people that are tired of it, spending huge amounts of money, taxing huge amounts of money, rampant deficit spending with unbelievable national debt piling up. People are really tired of this, and that's the pressure filtering back through the different parties at different rates of speed and ultimately reaching the White House and causing this tension that you're talking about. Well, some of them are. Uh, I, I wish more of them were. I think there are also are an awful lot of people who uh, have not reached that conclusion, which I find unfortunate. But, but uh, there, there certainly is no unanimity on uh, this need to cut back. There are a lot of people out there who feel their own particular ox is about to be gored. And, of course, there are people that still basically think this is all manna from heaven. There's a, a limitless supply of government money out there. Only meanies don't want to spend it. The, the whole, they think the whole idea of fiscal restraint is some kind of a, an act of greed on the part of the evil rich. They fall for the class warfare. What I find different and encouraging now is that that group of people seems to be shrinking. There's, there's penetration into parts of the electorate that up until now have been pretty copacetic with outrageous government spending that they never really thought the bills would come due. They're coming due, and eventually like the downgrade of America's credit rating are a bit of a wake-up call to people who don't normally follow these things carefully and are, are really just now getting the idea that there can't be spending without limit. Is this the principal reason that the president's approval rating is at an all-time low? I think it's a combination of things. There's that growing sense that people have that this approach is really disastrous, and he is strongly associated with it because, of course, he's the president, and he's a big believer in this kind of Keynesian big government stimulus. But also there's that sense of disconnectedness. People really don't like that. For good or bad, whatever party the president belongs to, people want to think that he's engaged. The worst thing to be is disconnected. That made quick work of the elder George Bush. He was riding on a 90% approval rating after the first Iraq war, and it was gone in a matter of months because the storyline of him being disconnected and clueless really settled in. And it got to the point of the great barcode scanner debacle. He's at a checkout line in a grocery store. He makes a polite comment about the barcode scanner. It turns into a big story that he doesn't know what a barcode scanner is, and he's never bought his own groceries before. And it killed him. It really stuck to him, and they could never dispel it, even though it was never really an accurate story. That's the same thing happening to Obama. That sense of disconnectedness is very difficult to come back from. We'll talk a little bit about how uh, uh, passing comments can uh, come back to bite people sometimes. Uh, you did a recent article for uh, uh, the good uh, readers over at humanevents.com called The Bachman Hurricane Slam, How a Bad Joke Became a Dopey Smear. Tell us about that. She was uh, giving a speech in Sarasota, and she made a joke about Hurricane Irene and the D.C. earthquake. It was a very quick and passing joke. And what she said was, Washington doesn't pay attention to anything that happens, and here's a hurricane and an earthquake that are like a sign from God, and they're still ignoring us. And it was meant as a joke, a joke of, of questionable taste. You can certainly challenge whether she should have said that. People died in Hurricane Irene, even though it wasn't as bad as, as people said it would be. But it was a joke, and the audience took it as such. She was laughing. They were laughing. If you watch the video, you would have no question that this was her making some kind of a jest and, and the audience reacting to it. But it somehow turned into a big story that she was serious, that this was some gesture of religious fanaticism, that she was no different than any of the fire and brimstone types that think that every bad thing is God punishing the country for its evil ways and so forth. And it was turned into a pretty sustained attack on her that was only really dispelled when her spokespeople went out there and started telling people, watch the video. You know, this is ridiculous. She was kidding. I think 
think she shouldn't have made the joke. She should probably be especially sensitive to making that kind of joke at this point. But it still was wildly misinterpreted and unfair to her. Is there a lot of unfair gotchas being aimed right now at the Republican presidential contenders? Uh, I, I think, in particular, of the, of uh, I guess the uh, the put down du jour, which is that uh, uh, Texas Governor Rick Perry isn't very smart. And also that he's a fanatic. He the uh, the big trap that was laid for him was this bizarre encounter he had while he was working a, a group of mixed supporters and hecklers. And this woman shoves her kid out in front of Rick Perry and starts coaching the kid to ask him questions about creationism and evolution and so forth to try to trip him up. He handled it quite well. He was pretty graceful about it. He even made kind of a joke about the woman obviously coaching her child. And I think the takeaway from that did not really hurt him. He's he's risen steadily in the polls since that moment. And most people aware of that incident had the reaction that this woman was the, the weird one. You know, why would she do this? Why would somebody use mm-hmm. their kid as a sock puppet to ask a political candidate a question? That, that just didn't settle well with people. So whatever gotcha they were trying to get out of Rick Perry, it really didn't work. Have we gotten past the point in this uh, very early presidential campaign where uh, we, we talk about all the contenders as being essentially midgets and where are the statesmen uh, ignoring the fact that, of course, uh, uh, Obama and uh, George W. and uh, Bill Clinton and, and just go right back through the list. They were all pretty much nobodies until suddenly they raised their hands at the convention and the balloons came dropping down. Oh, yeah, I think we're past the stage where we all call them that, and we've reached the much more interesting stage where they start calling each other midgets. Now comes the really fun part where they, they start jockeying for position and claiming that I'm the front runner. No, I'm the front runner. If you don't like Perry, I'm the anti-Perry. No, I'm the anti-Perry. I'm the anti-Romney. That, that's natural. It's going to happen in any crowded presidential field. I think we're well into that process now. A couple of more debates are coming up. You've got one in South Carolina coming up pretty soon. Appearances where they'll have a chance to interact with the public. And following those, I think some of the third-tier type candidates will probably start dropping out. We're getting close to five months before the Iowa caucuses. Will Sarah Palin actually run? That's the the question on a lot of people's minds because she's been pretty mysterious about it. I do think it's lazy conventional wisdom to say that it's too late or getting too late and she can't. She still could, and if she does, it's still going to be a pretty big deal if she does decide to get into the race. Perry getting in there changed the equation. He's exciting. A lot of people are interested in him. He's not a substitute for her. Anybody who's a big devotee of Sarah Palin would bristle at that suggestion. But he did definitely bring a sense of excitement. He leapt into the front-runner position. If she enters now, she She's going to be running primarily against him and maybe a little bit against Romney and Bachman, which is a different formula than it would have been if she jumped into the race two weeks ago. So these if she had jumped into the race a few months back, there might not have been a Michelle Bachman or a Rick Perry in this race. I mean, whether she goes on to run or win the nomination or even the presidency, uh, you'll never convince me that if she does all of that, that she was anything other than lucky. I mean, this is like someone was handing her notes. This is how you don't run for president of the United States. Maybe I'm just a part of that that dumb conventional wisdom, but uh, I just can't see how the Internet age, except maybe in a caucus state like Iowa, where you can hype up uh, the partisans and and get them out to caucuses. I just don't see how waiting until the the big names have committed and a lot of the big money has committed is a plus, unless we have totally changed the election equation in this country, just because we all have computers. 
the money is probably a bigger question there. The big money does tend to line up against people, and you can wait too long. You can get to the point where all the big money is spoken for, and it's hard to finance your campaign. So that's a real concern that people don't like to think about, but it's true. It's really something to worry about. But as far as the popular vote and then as far as gaining electoral votes, everything that leads up to Iowa and New Hampshire and so forth is prologue. It's a long prologue, and it's an important prologue. And then the moment comes, and you have those first couple of primaries, and things start changing really fast one way or the other. If somebody bolts out of the gate and scores knockout blows in those first big primaries, it can really erase a lot of the maneuvering up to that. All of a sudden, nobody remembers what they were doing six months ago. So it's not that now doesn't matter. It's that now has to be viewed in the context of the buildup to a great challenge yet to come. More to come as we continue our discussion tonight on the Jim Bohannon Show with John Hayward of humanevents.com. And uh, we're at one eight six six five zero jimbo on the Bohannon Show. Brought to you by the National Flood Insurance Program. Only flood insurance covers floods. Visit floodsmart.gov for your free flood risk profile. That's floodsmart.gov. We'll be back here at Westwood One. Welcome back to the Jimbo Hannon Show as we talk a bit of uh, the politics and policy of the day with uh, the White House getting set for the next installment of uh, As the Jobs Creation Turns and also Congress returns to town to deal with that and a few other issues that we'll bring up tonight with John Hayward from humanevents.com. So we've got uh, Alan Kruger of Princeton University, who's the new chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Introduce us to him. Well, he has been working with the administration in the past. He worked uh, for the Treasury Department a couple of years ago. He was involved in the Cash for Clunkers program. He was one of the theoreticians behind that little disaster. And he's a big believer in government spending programs and government control of the economy. The one major place he really differs from the Obama administration, or at least used to, is that he doesn't think unemployment insurance and food stamps are a great form of economic stimulus. He wrote a paper to the effect that that's a mistaken belief. And that is a very cherished, I would say, almost sacred belief of the Obama economic team. So either he's going to drop or mute that view, or he's going to talk them out of believing it, which I I somewhat doubt, but we'll see what happens. So in that regard, you would uh, view Mr. Kruger as uh, a a small step in the right direction, or what? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a fair fair assessment of a very small step, perhaps, in the right direction. On the big issues, he is still a big believer in this idea of the government managing the economy and of stimulus programs and and micro-government. I think that's a terrible mistake. I think what we're seeing is the comprehensive failure of that line of reasoning. And I'm not impressed by an academic who has years of credentials and tons of scholarly papers in support of these ideas. One of the other scholarly papers he wrote was apparently a pretty long treatise on how raising the minimum wage does not increase unemployment, which is ridiculous. That's another one of those scholarly papers designed to convince everybody not to believe something that's obviously true. Whatever you like about the minimum wage, it does increase unemployment, and it's not complicated to see why. You make labor more expensive than people buy less of it. One eight six six five zero Jimbo is our number. One eight six six five zero five four six two six. So as I noted, we are now about five months away from the Iowa caucuses, which means that uh, we're about fourteen months away from the 
the general election, uh, not all that long. And I have uh, read somewhere that, that uh, there hasn't been a president, I guess, in, in, in recent memory, maybe going back to Franklin Roosevelt, who has won re-election when unemployment was higher than 7.5%. And, of course, uh, the most optimistic scenario from uh, an administration economic spokesman wouldn't, I don't think, put unemployment uh, as that much better by, uh, by November of, of next year. Is there any way that uh, this president wins re-election? Well, it's, that's an interesting piece of, of wisdom. That is the way it's been in the past. And there's been kind of a sustained effort to change that goalpost over the past couple of months. Some articles have been written, and, and Washington is buzzed with the idea that maybe the real unemployment death number is 10% or 9%, you know, or something that Obama might have a chance of beating. But I think there's a good reason why unemployment at that level bothers people. That unemployment figure we're seeing, which is currently 9.2%, is a heavily massaged number. That's known as the U3 unemployment statistic. And it discounts people who dropped out of the workforce altogether. If you add those people back in, the real unemployment rate is about 16.2% right now, and that gives you a much better idea of the effect this is having on people and why the country is so disgruntled. It's hard to imagine they would reelect a president who creates that level of unemployment. They hold him responsible for it accurately. In my view, his policies have been destructive to job creation and business expansion, and they're not going to want to give him another chance to keep doing that. No matter what else he promises or says or does, there's that sense that things can get better, or things can only get better when unemployment is that bad. That principle has been used against presidents of both parties over the years, and there's no reason to think he's immune to it. Just as an aside here, I used to actually uh, be uh, a reporter for uh, a business report at this network, and I would actually sit around and, and I would wait for the figures to be released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And that other number, and, and several others, in fact, are released but for some reason, we always latch, we in the media, I guess, always latch onto this particular unemployment figure, although there is, of course, something obviously uh, incorrect or skewed about the notion that if you've stopped looking for work because you're discouraged, that you, you uh, aren't really out of work. Of course you are. I mean, uh, and, and you would desperately take a job if you could find one. You just don't know where to look anymore. Uh, why do we report that figure as opposed to the obviously more meaningful figure? That, that is a fascinating question. I don't remember when I first became aware of the other one. I, I know that at some point I found myself looking at the table of U1 through U6 metrics and reading what U6 was and thinking, gosh, why aren't we talking about this one? And in the president's previous economic advisor, Alan Kruger's predecessor, Austin Goolsby, back during the Bush years, was a strong proponent of using the U6 number. He used to loudly say that the U3 number was foolish and that's not the one we should use. He was right. It is really strange that that's the number. I would guess that the government strongly encouraged encourages the use of that number. Not only do you get the official release from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you get a constellation of other press releases from various government agencies that come along with each round of employment news, and I think everyone is strongly encouraged to look at the U3 number. That's also the number that pops up in comparisons all the time. Whenever you read a paper or a government statement or a news report that kind of mentions unemployment in passing, they always yeah. use the U3 number. I think it's, it's saturated coverage to the point where that's the number everyone yeah. thinks back to. Absolutely. Almost as if the head of the Bureau of Labor Statistics was a political appointee by the incumbent administration. Oh, son of a gun. More to come. 1-866-50-JIMBO. We'll be back.
Good to have you with us on the Jimbo Hannon Show at one eight six six five zero Jimbo, one eight six six five zero five four six two six, and uh, online you'll find us at uh, JimboTalk dot net. As a number of things are are happening, just how how significant those things are remains to be seen. But for the record, Congress is coming back to town this coming week. The president will announce his latest thoughts on creating jobs, and the president has a new chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. All of this would seem to be the setting for something happening, but uh, then again, uh, we've been fooled by that sort of thing uh, before. I'm curious, uh, John Hayward of uh, HumanEvents.com, how you would grade the Tea Partiers to this point, inasmuch as they have gone well past the rhetoric phase. Some of them have been in positions of power. They have affected, certainly, the national debate. How have they done? Well, they've done extremely well considering that they don't have much in the way of central organization. There really isn't a Tea Party high command per se. There are some people that are leaders in the movement, but they really don't have any kind of a unifying organizational force driving them forward. And considering how diffuse they are, they've had an enormous effect. It really is almost the perfect grassroots movement. People that just came out of nowhere, people that had ordinary walk-a-day lives, and they all got together and formed this thing. And they keep showing up at the meetings and reading the newsletters, going to the websites, and staying involved, they, they've proved that people can make an impact just by raising their voices and making themselves heard. But they always knew they had a tall order ahead of them, and it was going to be a long struggle. In the end, the debt ceiling was, in fact, raised again. Was that necessary? Was that inevitable? Because there are, of course, those, uh, including some, some uh, Tea Party-backed members of Congress who finally did go along with the, the last deal put forward, uh, who've been accused of selling out. I was always of the opinion after studying it that, I, that they shouldn't have raised it. I think they should have left it where it was. It would have caused all sorts of chaos in Washington. Good. There needs to be chaos. That cage needs to be shaken. But as a fallback, I was a big fan of the Cut, Cap, and Balance Act. If you were going to raise it, that was, to me, a reasonable set of conditions to shoot for. And it came four votes shy in the Senate. It was it was a very, very close-run thing. Jim DeMinn, in the latter days of the debt ceiling debate, was running around to every camera he could find and saying, just give me four more votes. Everybody's talking about how it's impossible to get legislation passed, we're almost there. And it was a really close thing, and that was the Tea Party. We are going to now get a vote, at least that was promised in this deal, a vote on a balanced budget constitutional amendment. And that, of course, does not have to go past any presidential veto. That simply has to get the uh, uh, approval of the House and the Senate by the requisite vote uh, of, of two-thirds and then uh, approval by three-quarters of the state legislatures. What do you think the prospects are that, in fact, that might actually happen? It's a long shot because the, the debt ceiling deal was rewritten so that only the vote was needed. At one point, there was talk that, the, that it would have to pass in order for the second round of, of advanced debt to be extended. That would have been a far tougher condition that didn't work out. So they just have to hold the vote on it. It's an opportunity. Really, the Tea Party movement has been all about opportunity, about seeing an opportunity to speak and raise these issues. No one expected the debt ceiling battle to be as dramatic as it was for as many things to happen as they did. I think there's political fallout we have yet to feel this will be another opportunity to do that, another chance to make a difference. And the fact, of course, that uh, there is, in fact, going to be a vote means that uh, it might pass. And conversely, if it does not pass, then every member who voted against it will have that dangling around his neck as the uh, uh, 
campaign of next year rolls around for, of course, a lot more than the presidency for a third of the Senate and all of the House as well. So, so even a losing vote does have uh, some uh, some leverage on members of Congress. Yeah, nothing gets people on the record like a vote. There's there's something that you've done there. It's a legislative action by a representative. Everything else, to a certain degree, is talk. Voting is action, and action gets people in position. It builds a record that people can judge from. Isn't it ironic that the tougher the decisions are in Washington, the further removed from direct control they go? You couldn't over the years ever get any kind of agreement on which military bases to close, regardless of what the Pentagon said it needed. So you came up with the base closing commission. They draw up the list. Members have to vote up or down so they can go back home and tell all the folks who work at good old Camp Swampy that they did their darndest, but it just wasn't enough, and we're going to be closing her down. And now we've got this this uh, uh, deficit reduction and spending cut uh, a super committee, uh, which, again, uh, they can recommend. Congress has to accept it up or down, no amendments. And it's, it's to me, interesting that uh, we can't leave that to uh, uh, more direct representation, that we've got to, in essence, remove the process one step further from the people in order to get something done. Yeah, I didn't like that. I really didn't like the super committee idea for that very reason. This isn't something that should be shuffled off to a, a small committee behind closed doors that becomes a, a parliamentary trash can where, where serious deficit reduction can go to die. But on the other hand, it is interesting that the terms of the debate have shifted. It seems as if big government, wild spending, the deficit crowd, those people are on the defensive now. That's what changed in this debt ceiling battle, and I think that's what's going to make this balanced budget debate a little bit different. It's no longer a question of treating the balanced budget amendment is an unnecessary extravagance, uh, you know, some sort of a restraint that doesn't need to be there. Instead, it's the other way around. The other side has to make the case that we don't need one, and that's becoming an increasingly difficult case for them to make. One eight six six five zero Jimbo. One eight six six five zero five four six two six. As we're talking with John Hayward of HumanEvents.com and with Doug in Whitefish, Montana. Good evening. Hey, good evening. How are you, Jim? We're well, thank you. And, John, nice to, to hear you. It's a great topic tonight. <clears throat> just um, in the subject we were just speaking of, uh, Thomas Jefferson famously said that uh, it is incumbent upon every generation to pay its debts as it goes. Uh, therefore, one half of the world's wars would have been avoided. Um, I, I have a question, though. In the background of everything that's been going on, it's significant. we're seeing the flash mob. We're seeing that the uh, progressive movement is basically going to occupy Wall Street next month. What do you think about the social situation, and is this going to affect um, the outcome of the next, next election? Well, that's an excellent question. There's a, a real danger to the idea of human capital being degraded by dependency, and I think some of this is that. Basically, it's a growing sense on the part of some of our people that something is going to change in a bad way that's out of their control. They're dependent on the government. They don't like this, this stuff being talked about, being taken away from them. A lot of energy has been expended to make people angry. You had all that Tea Party terrorist talk. Remember that during the debt ceiling battle? The Tea Party guys are a bunch of terrorists. Well, terrorists, those guys are monsters you know you got to fight them so there's a real effort to try to get people kind of whipped up here and i think it's it's bearing some fruit this growing sense of anger coming from the left's constituencies is becoming an increasingly violent clash and i think it's it's quite right to be worried about that civil unrest is almost guaranteed this government is gigantic it's plugged into everything and if we seriously cut spending not just a little bit here and there not just a reduction in growth but we actually cut spending if we stopped spending growth the cbo would 
score that as a $7 trillion cut, the way they calculate these things. That's enormous. That is going to change people's lives. It was a mistake to let it get to this point, and it's, it's not going to be easy to change it. More to come. one 866 jimbo with John Hayward of HumanEvents.com. We'll be back here at Westwood One. person won't you please explain how you can take big money to finance your campaign and not feel more beholden to the fat cats with the dough than to us folks who elected you i'd really like to know yeah just between us humans do you really have time to think when your survival requires you to always schmooze and drink with the folks who give you money for your TV ads and such on the airwaves that at one time were considered the public trust. They roll through here every now and then, so if you ever get a chance, ask your congressperson a thing or two about campaign finance. For $6 per voter, we could get this thing on track. It seems a tiny price to pay to get our government back. So wouldn't it be in your interest and certainly in mine to pay for our elections all together at one time? I'll put in my $6, for that is all it takes to kick the corporations out and democracy remake. So tell me, congressperson, why wouldn't this work for you? It seems it'd give you time for all the work you have to do. To reach some wise decisions, learn what you're talking about. Instead of raising money day in and day out. Yeah, they roll through here every now and then, so if you ever get a chance, ask your congressperson a thing or two about campaign finance. For $6 per voter, we could get this thing on track. It seems a tiny price to pay to get our government back. Hello, by the name of Jim Turr right there at uh, jimturr.com, J-I-M-T-E-R-R.com. And uh, it's interesting to play this. It is, of course, uh, obviously a, a, a liberal plaint, uh, but uh, I have to think, uh, frankly, uh, John Hayward of HumanEvents.com, that the last person in the world who would embrace that notion at this juncture would be Mr. Money-Raising King himself, Barack Obama. I mean, how much money is he going to raise for this re-election effort? Well, there, there have been estimates that he may be pulling in a total of a billion dollars for his re-election, and, and, and that process is well underway. He spends a great deal of time fundraising, and a lot of what he does is really more a campaign activity than anything that's really related to the duties of the office of the presidency. So he's looking to roll into this election with a gigantic amount of money behind him. I don't think money wins elections by itself. There are plenty of stories of underfunded candidates winning, but it's a factor. You know, you, you can't look at a gigantic billion-dollar war chest and not think that's a formidable obstacle to overcome. You, you, you take a look at uh, this uh, 
the, well, what you call it. I'll just read your your title, and you go ahead and uh, and uh, launch here the Obama bus fraud. This was the the recent uh, presidential listening tour in uh, which he had a, this large motorcade, as you write, dominated by two million dollar Canadian buses. Uh, tell us about that. Well, it was supposed to be an opportunity for the president to go out and connect with small towns and, and listen to them. It was going to be a listening tour where he was going to learn about their lives. It was nothing of the sort. If you watched any of the, the stops that he made along the way, it was a campaign tour. It was a taxpayer-funded Obama campaign tour. And at most of these appearances, he spoke before carefully hand-selected crowds, and he gave them little speeches, and they told him how great he was. And the whole point behind the thing was to make him look good. But now comes a story that it turns out it wasn't even really a bus tour at all. He was being transported by plane, and so were the buses between some of the stops along the way. There have been some questions raised about how often this was done and how much he and the buses were airlifted around, but it wasn't really like a band or a high school basketball team going town to town and playing. There was some chicanery involved to make it look like he was rolling through middle America in a bus, and it wasn't just two buses either. His motorcade had something like 40 vehicles in it. He would rumble into a town and double its population with all of his entourage when he went there to give his speech. It was really kind of absurd. It was like the Godzilla footprint of big government stomping down on town after town, and it didn't do anybody any good as far as resolving unemployment. There was nothing to be learned by doing this. That, that whole concept is silly, and we can't afford gigantic, expensive tours like that. I don't know how often you use the term carbon footprint, but the term does come to mind in this particular case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even if, even if you leave out these stories of air travel, those two gigantic buses, all those vehicles, that, that's an awful lot of fossil fuel being burned there, and, and all for a campaign appearance, a taxpayer-funded campaign swing. Incumbency has its advantages. It always does. But that's almost absurd. That, that's like a parody of the idea of the incumbent having a leg up on his challengers. Nobody challenging him get, is going to get to have multimillion-dollar taxpayer-funded campaign swings through all these little towns to talk about how great he is. I honestly thought that there would possibly be a liberal challenge to the president, someone within his own party challenging him on the left, which, uh, among other things, uh, I would almost encourage that, I suppose, if I were uh, President Obama, it would make him look more moderate, but, but uh, a challenge of somebody other than just, say, a Dennis Kucinich, not a, not a, a token nuisance challenge, but somebody really upset, uh, because as we've spoken tonight from a predominantly conservative point of view, there are an awful lot of liberals out there who are not that happy with this president. You want to read some uh, stuff that uh, is not uh, pleasing to the president, uh, you don't have to go to a conservative blog, go to a lot of liberal blogs. Oh, and they're likely to get much less happy with them. What's coming ahead of us in the future is, above all other things, the great danger of a declining GDP. Our gross domestic product growth is almost negligible at this point. It was revised downwards to 0.4% in the first quarter recently. That means no job growth. You need about 3% GDP to have stable employment. We're nowhere near that, and we're not going to be for the rest of this year and probably not up until the election. So he can't do a lot of the things that liberals want him to do because those things just murder GDP growth. So he's more likely likely to try to tack a more moderate course, and that's going to make them mad. But it's really tough to challenge a sitting president that way. There aren't very many Ross Perot-type campaigns that come along and take a big bite out of the incumbent the way that Perot did for the, the first George Bush. And it's really hard to imagine a liberal of stature would want to run against him. That, that's going to be difficult to do in a lot of ways. You're going to get savaged for running against Obama during his re-election. You're getting in the way of the first black president. You're betraying the party. Obama's people would tear that person to shreds. And I'm sure the 
that a lot of people on the left would realize that even if an insurgent challenger were to somehow win the nomination and be the candidate, it's a really tough sell to go to the American people and say the other guy, Barack Obama, he was terrible, but our party's new candidate we've replaced him with, you're going to love him or you're going to love her. That's a really tough sell. It's just an effort that doesn't seem worth the effort. Yeah, although, of course, it didn't upset, obviously, uh, Ralph Nader. You do hear occasional rumblings. Uh, we've heard the name Michael Bloomberg, the mayor of New York, from time to time being uh, brought up in, in some kind of third-party capacity. Or uh, Donald Trump, who, of course, first uh, dangled a possible Republican bid. And I've heard his name being brought up as a potential uh, third-party candidate. How serious that is, I don't know. Uh, but both of those men, of course, Bloomberg and Trump, would have Perot-like resources to make a run for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a big possibility with Trump. He can certainly finance his own campaign. He has gigantic amounts of name recognition. He plays the media like a Stradivarius, so he, he would have no trouble building a high-profile third-party campaign. But in Trump's case, he is, at least according to the things he set up until now, a pretty big critic of what Obama has been doing. And he's got to realize that if he mounts his massive third-party campaign, he's going to do a lot more to keep Obama in office than dethrone him. So I think that if Trump is serious about the things that he set up until now, he's not going to launch a third-party candidacy that's almost certainly going to have the opposite of the effect he says he wants. One would, one would certainly think. More to come. Stay with us. John Hayward of HumanEvents.com. We'll be back. Jim Bohannon Show. We're talking with John Hayward of HumanEvents.com. And just to continue the theme before the break, in uh, one of your uh, recent uh, columns, the presumptions of Obama support. You take a look at what we were talking about, but not from the standpoint of of, uh, of disillusioned liberals as much as I suppose it would be uh, liberals who uh, maybe don't see him as effective, but they still consider him well-meaning. That, that's always been one of the interesting things about the way the government has grown and the way that liberalism and leftist thought have grown more powerful in the United States. Liberalism gets endless credit for its good intentions. If it doesn't work and it was disastrous, well, maybe the wrong guy tried it or this was the wrong program or something beyond all of their controls happened to the economy. But, you know, the next guy is going to do great, and the idea was sound. The benevolent intentions get them an endless amount of space. That's a terrible way for a voter to behave. No voter should think that. Way. Look at what they actually do and what the results are, and understand that no amount of good intentions in the world is going to change economic reality, which boils down to your liberty. Economics is not this dry, uh, you know, financial topic. It's not accounting and necessarily this green eye shade stuff. It's all about your freedom, what you're allowed to do, your life, the control of your time, the control of your money, and all these people with these huge compulsive ideas that are going to make everything better keep taking away more and more of your freedom, and it never comes back because. They got all that credit for good intentions. They're never expected to refund what they gave you or concede that they made a horrible mistake. The next imposition of liberty just rolls right along after the first one. What's the likelihood that Congress and the president will agree on some jobs creation course? And for that matter, what is the advisability of that? Well, the, the most effective thing they could do for job creation in one single stroke, repeal Obamacare. Do it tomorrow. 
that it would have an effect on job creation like you wouldn't believe. Obamacare is the biggest job-killing legislation in our lifetimes. It's already destroyed thousands of jobs. It killed thousands of jobs within a week of its passage, and it's never really stopped killing jobs because it produces high cost and uncertainty. And by uncertainty, I think what you really mean is the growing dread that more bad things are going to come from it. It's a bleeding wound in the side of American business, and getting rid of it, along with other pro-business reforms like lowering the capital gains tax rate, real regulatory reform that would get the boot off the neck of businesses. You've got the Environmental Protection Agency poised to pass a new set of rules that could wipe out something like 8% of the electrical generation capacity in the country at a stroke. That's the kind of thing that kills jobs. That's what people are afraid of. Job creators know that more stuff like that is in the pipe and there's an avalanche of it coming down on their heads and they're terrified. That's what you need to get rid of in order to spur real job growth. John Hayward, he is a staff writer at humanevents.com. As we look ahead to the president's latest jobs proposal and the return of Congress to Washington, all post-Labor Day. More to come on the Jimbo Hannon Show. We are with you weeknights right here at Westwood One. Welcome to the Jimbo Hannon Show from Westwood One Radio. We're at 1-866-50-JIMBO, 1-866-505-4626. Online, you'll find us at jimbotalk.net. When it comes to higher education, the U.S. is the envy of the world. We not only have the best institutions of higher learning, we also have most of them, just in terms of sheer numbers, quantity and quality. Sending a kid to college has become part of the American dream. It is becoming, of course, harder and harder to attain these days because of the cost. Besides medical care, I'm not sure what in this country has a higher inflation right now than the cost of a higher education. And uh, there is, of course, the fact that not every child is cut out to be a collegiate. A technical or vocational education might be a better choice for many. So parents of high schoolers and high schoolers have lots of decisions to make, a cost-effective decision in many cases, and that is whether or not it is worth it to go to college. Let's talk about that tonight, because we have with us a couple of gentlemen who have differing views about this. Educator Mark Greenstein, who thinks this is a good investment. He is the founder and lead instructor of the firm's Ivy Bound Tutoring and Test Prep and Rising Stars. He's also the franchise owner of various college nannies and tutors outlets in the New York City and Hartford, Connecticut areas. And a man who's not so sure this is such a great deal is Steve Olcher, known as America's America's reinvention expert. He's the founder of Reinvention Radio, creator of the Reinvention Workshop, and author of the book Journey to You, a step-by-step guide to becoming who you were born to be in paperback from Bold Press. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us tonight. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. You're very welcome. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, let's start with uh, Mark Greenstein. Uh, Why? What's the basic case for the fact that a college education is worth it? I think the basic case is bottom line earnings over a lifetime. 
which for college graduates and uh, by comparing them against those who don't have a college degree, high school is all they've reached, uh, the college graduate will on average exceed by a lot the earnings of the non-college graduate. There are very few careers that are open to those who have not gone to accredited colleges. Sales is one. You can do fine in sales without a college degree. It's pretty hard to find a widespread profession beyond sales, though. Okay. Uh, in in uh, opposition to that, again, of course, it has been the conventional wisdom for many a year, uh, Steve Olsher. Why is uh, a college education not such a good investment? Well, I think that uh, the proof is in the numbers, which is uh, and it's getting scarier every day, Jim. But the fact of the matter is that after a child, and really when you're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-old kids, I mean, those are still children. Uh, and just to clarify here, the, the position that I have is that it's just simply the worst investment that a parent can make. I am not against secondary institutions, secondary education. I just do not believe that the parents should be funding that bill at any point, especially for an 18, 19, or 20-year-old, when the facts are that 60%, 6-0 of the kids that graduate from college do not work in their field of study, and 50% of those who do graduate with a four-year degree have jobs that do not require a bachelor's degree of any shape or form. Let me ask you a bit about the, the notion of the parents. Uh, clearly, if you're talking about someone going to an expensive school, and uh, they all are to one degree or another, but I'm talking here about some of the elite schools, and let's say that, that uh, the parents' income is such that uh, they don't qualify for a lot of financial aid, you can hardly expect a kid bagging groceries and mowing lawns to pay a major chunk of going to Harvard or Yale. Well, now we're talking about a whole different discussion, which is the value of a Harvard or Yale education and whether or not, in fact, there is a cost-benefit analysis uh, and a return on that investment that makes sense. But certainly, I think that we need to really take a, a good, hard look at how we are educating our students and the educational myth that has been perpetuated now for decades and whether or not, in fact, that Harvard, that Yale, or any education of that matter in, in any way, shape, or form, in fact, represents a good, solid investment either by the parent or by the student. But no, I mean, certainly you're not going to have a child that can, uh, that can foot a $100,000 bill. But at the same token, as a parent, it's irresponsible to put a child behind the wheel of a $100,000 car and then get mad when they crash it. It just doesn't make any sense. All right. The notion uh, that somebody at Yale is going to crash his career is ludicrous. Yale is about the best launching pad for people to an excellent career. Um, Steve's picking on, I think, the worst possible examples for his case. I would agree that there are some colleges that don't train you, don't give a very good elite pedigree, and perhaps they are wasting their parents or the kids' money. But if you're at a top 100 university, you are in the best position to make a career, to have a status, to marry well, and that's still not a bad thing to be thinking about as well. You, you've got the best opportunities. And, Jim, over the last 10 years, the gap has gotten wider, not smaller. This yeah, is the gap between people with a college degree as opposed to those without. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, that's, that's not... The case, as a matter of fact, the numbers support that the, the, the value 
of that piece of paper, which is really what we're talking about at this point, has diminished greatly in the workplace. When you look at 1970, an 11% of the workforce had a college degree. It actually meant something at that point. But today, when the average uh, number of people is 38 out of every 100 have that college degree, you're not talking about the same weight, the same type of of, of, of impact that a four-year college degree once carried. And our argument here is really that so much of that time and energy and, and, and money is wasted on a traditional college education because, frankly, 60%, as I said, come out of school and don't pursue careers within their field of study. We have to get these kids on path to becoming clear on what it is that they want to do, and that requires some other options. So we can certainly. But there talk may about be other, other options, options, and we will certainly get into the other options, obviously, before the evening is out. But if, in fact, the, the actual income gap, uh, that in and of itself is a goal for many people, even if, in fact, they don't wind up in uh, what they were studying at, at college, they don't wind up doing what they majored in, even if, in fact, they wind up doing a job that uh, does not require a bachelor's degree, it would still seem that, that nonetheless, uh, the numbers wouldn't be widening if there wasn't some difference. Maybe it's just uh, the fact that it's on the resume, but for whatever reason, even if you can argue plausibly that it isn't a good reason, if employers are willing to shell out the bucks, that's a good enough reason to the person with the, the sheepskin, isn't it? Well, and I hear you loud and clear on that, Jim, and Mark, I appreciate the point as well. The problem, in my opinion, also has to be when we take a look at the equation as a whole, that gap is really widening in, in, in just tremendous fashion between the haves and the have-nots. And unfortunately, there are very few people across the spectrum that get to those positions where the pieces of paper actually mean something. When you're talking about the higher institutions, the top 100, you can look at the demographic cut from that, and it's so it's a very scary proposition. Steve, but, the but have could you have not gap is almost certainly making itself manifest when the haves have the college degrees. When you're looking at the haves, very few are in that category without a college degree. Yeah, Jim, did you have something you wanted to say on that? Well, no, I wanted you to go ahead and respond to what uh, Mr. Greenstein had to say. Yeah, and look, there is certainly uh, there is certainly factual evidence that represents the, the 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 number. You can't deny the numbers that those who graduate from those types of institutions far surpass their counterparts who graduate from lesser institutions. What I'm asking us to to really look at here is: Are we perpetuating this gap between the haves and have-nots in a way that is unfair to the to the way that the demo the, to the way that demographics of our society are are really just aligned at this point. When you look at the graduates, 96% of the graduates from the top 100 institutions are white. That does not reflect what is going on in our country right now. Although I'm curious about one thing, to, to follow up on that, if I could just hear uh, just a, a little bit. Uh, I was under the impression that in terms of the wherewithal to attend college, that the problem had always been in the, in the lower middle of that, that the, at the upper end, uh, mommy and daddy can afford to write a check for the whole thing. At the bottom end, people who qualify for these institutions uh, tend to get uh, some pretty fair uh, scholarship and, and loan money, uh, and it's the people who just barely miss the cutoff point who uh, are, are considered just a little too too wealthy for the for the student aid, but not nearly wealthy enough to actually foot the bill. That those were the people who were not going uh, to college. Is that not correct? 
Jim, I know from this experience, my firm is Ivy Bound, and we do classes in many schools. At the few urban schools where we've been invited to teach SAT classes, the phenomenon there is these kids are getting money for college. They are not having to scrape um, because they've qualified based on colleges and federal standards that based on low income and low wealth or just being a city resident, they're, they're not scraping like the lower middle class and central middle class families are. It really is a very different world, um, and their standards, they still have to meet decent standards, but once they meet those, colleges come running to them with, with very low tuitions, if not zero tuition. More to come. Stay with us. one 866 jimbo one 866 Mark Greenstein with us tonight, educator and the man who believes that there is a considerable value in a college education. Steve Olsher, America's reinvention expert, author of the book Journey to You, who says that it has been oversold. one 866 jimbo one 866 How do you feel? Is a college education worth it? We'll be back. Welcome back to the Jimbo Hannon Show at one 866 jimbo one 866 What about a college education? Taken as a, a given, a granted in, in many circles, I'm sure. And, and yet uh, there, there are obviously uh, some cases where it uh, doesn't seem as though maybe this is all that has always been cracked up to be. We're talking tonight with Steve Olsher, America's reinvention expert, and also with educator Mark Greenstein, who re- believe respectively that it's not such a good deal and, uh, in fact, that it is worth it. I would note uh, one thing, uh, Mark Greenstein. Uh, there are far too many people who go to college who do so principally because mommy and daddy would be very embarrassed at the country club if their child merely picked up uh, a collar with a slight trace of blue in it, like being a paralegal or a, uh, a lab technician or a computer or a mechanic, programmer. God forbid. <laughs> yeah, or, or a plumber. Although I would uh, ask you, of course, when was the last time you saw any of those folks out there uh, on food stamps, especially plumbers? But... Uh, uh, there, there is certainly there, there needs at the very least to be a certain winnowing process about the reasons that one goes to acquire that college degree. Jim, I'm not convinced of that because I'm one of those kids. Uh, I'm a doctor's kid who went to college with, because it was the next thing you're expected to do. But it got me many further places that I couldn't have gotten to. So even though it was a very fuzzy direction, even though my major changed, I come out, as most students do, with a better career path, a much better resume, despite changes and misdirectedness at age 17. By age 22, things work out a lot better. Yeah, and i got to tell you, from my position, Jim, it's, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's, I mean, no matter how, uh, how, how it tastes, that silver spoon still feeds you. And so when you're looking at what the options are for, for the majority of the kids that are out there, and, again, we're not talking about, the, you know, as, as Mark pointed out earlier, the lower-income kids where they get, uh, you know, the free ride if they meet certain qualifications. Talking about the majority, the largest majority of students that are in the system right now have no business being at school at 
17, 18, 19, 20 years old. It's really just an advanced form of babysitting. The only difference is that now they're instead of getting the bottle from their mama, they're really just getting it from the bartenders. And so a lot of these kids use, you know, use college as a social experience, as a social experiment, when in fact all they're doing is pissing away mommy and daddy's money. And so I'm, I'm totally against the idea here of putting these kids in school until they have a pure understanding or at least a much better understanding of who they are and what it is they're really compelled to do. And that's the focus of my work. And once we can help people figure out what that is, as Buddha says, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And so right. often there's a lot of different ways to think about education. Now in a four-year college is not the only answer. We'll come back uh, and pursue that more. Right now I call from Chris in Petoskey, Michigan. Hello, Chris. Welcome. Uh, yes, I just had a, a question for Mr. Olsher. If um, um, I'm a college student myself now later in life, and I'm going to there um, being lower income, it really isn't a free ride. There will be student loans to pay off, which I'm very aware of. Um, I just wonder if some of this with the people not using their college degrees, if you feel some of this may just be because of the unemployment dilemma we have now, and they're basically just doing what they have to do until they can find what they want to do. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, and I appreciate the question. I think the fact of the matter is that now that you've gone back to school at, a, at, a, at an older age, you have a much better sense of what it is that you're really compelled to do and what it is that you want to study. But I think really when you talk about the economic situation, the fact of the matter is that people are out there looking for jobs. And Jim Rohn, is, he's really said it best. He said, formal education will make you a living, but self-education will make you a fortune. And the fact of the matter is that we're, we're going about this the wrong way. We think that if we go to school and we get an education, we can go out and create a career. The fact of the matter is that it's totally the antithesis of what the truth is. And the truth is you need to be clear on what it is that you're compelled to do and then go out and seek that education. So the fact of the matter that you've gone back at an older age will give you an advantage because you're more mature, you've recognized what your options and opportunities are, and you're now pursuing that. The fact of the matter is that kids are just not in a position position to be able to make those choices and to perpetuate this educational myth that they have to go from uh, high school to college is doing everyone a huge disservice and the only one that's helping is the economic engine known as our education system all right let's ask mark greenstein about that i if the caller's still on the phone i wanted to ask him whether he regrets not going to college at age 19 or 20 the caller actually is not okay. uh, on the line uh, well, at the moment I, I i will respond that it, it is a, if you go to employers, very few of them turn a resume to the cake pile from somebody who wasn't a college graduate. It's common sense that when the employers are seeking college grads and you're choosing because of advice that I fear Steve is, is influencing people to take. Gee, college is not going to help me in my career. That's not what I'm saying. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I do know. Way. But I do know this: companies don't hire pieces of paper. Companies hire talent. They hire drive. They hire work ethic. Well, they hire differentiation. Yeah, but they, look, they they can't. None of those things, though, Steve, are even demonstrated in the beginning. They hope they're hiring talent and well, drive, but yeah. they are hiring a piece of paper essentially because they don't really know. It is a pig and a poke. And a follow-up to that, also, Steve, would be this: Are you really suggesting that we subsidize a, a portion of a generation of kids to just go out and, and quote find themselves uh, while we wait for them to decide what it is they want to do? Uh, yeah, I somehow I don't I don't see that as a very very productive way to treat people in their early twenties. 
Yeah, and I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying, but we, we, the reality is that you're preaching to the choir insofar as what you're, what you're discussing there in, in, in the idea of putting these kids out into the workplace and having the, see, cause these kids come out of school right now and they feel this sense of entitlement. They feel like, hey, I've got my MBA, I've spent 16 years now in the educational system plus a bonus too, and I should be making 80 grand. Why? Because you've learned from someone who's never built anything. The problem is that these teachers that we have out there, for the most part, have never done anything but teach. Who are you going to hire if you're going to hire an $80,000 person, whether it be someone with an MBA or someone who's gone out and proven themselves for five, well, six, or eight uh, years? If you can afford to get those people at starting wages, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Jimbo Hannett Show at one eight six six five zero Jimbo one eight six six five zero five four six two six and online. By the way, you'll find us at uh, JimboTalk.net. As uh, we are uh, talking tonight with a couple of uh, gentlemen who have uh, some differing views, although as you can see, it's not uh, quite as cut and dried perhaps as our our original uh, premise uh, put it forward. They can certainly agree that there is a need for a college education on the part of a, of a good many people uh, in terms of, uh, of their ultimate career goals. But uh, do, do the people who go, all of them need to go. And even there, there is some agreement that there are, are some who uh, go to college who probably uh, don't uh, need that, uh, that degree. Educator Mark Greenstein with us and uh, also Steve Olsher, America's reinvention expert. Just as a follow-up, before we go back to uh, the calls here, uh, uh, Steve Olsher, uh, I'm sure that, that employers would all love to be hiring uh, uh, Bill Gates or, or Steve Jobs uh, if they could identify them. But they're paying starting salaries here. And, and, uh, and you, you are going to get uh, people who w have that much promise. You're going to get beginners, people who've got uh, an A-B degree who are waiting for the world to teach them the rest of the alphabet. Yeah, and that's where I think we have it just totally backwards. And by the way, Bill Gates nor Steve Jobs have a college degree, so there you go. But uh, but the fact of the matter is coming out of school, you're just not in a position to demand anything, which puts you pretty much in the same boat as those who didn't go to school. And i got to tell you, if you spend four years in the workplace really honing your craft and figuring out what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, you're going to be of more value, hands down, than the person well, who spent four years in that, that depends. Classroom. I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that, for example, uh, being – uh, uh, an x-ray technician is necessarily the best path to medical school or being a paralegal is the best path uh, to law school. Uh, I mean, for some people whose, uh, whose background is going to require, at the very least, some form of graduate degree, uh, Mark Greenstein, uh, uh, does this on-the-job training approach work, at least as, as our society and economy are currently structured? There tends to be a cap as to how high you can rise without a degree. Uh, Yes, but would this would this kind of on-the-job apprenticeship to which Steve Olsher is referring would that would that be a worthwhile uh, amendment to our current system? Not until the majority of big employers embrace that. If if you are hoping for this nice change, this is pie-in-the-sky hope that will cripple your children if they follow the advice that, oh, it would be better to do apprenticeships and maybe someday employers will come around. To use even 
uh, Steve's examples of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Uh, they are exceptions the, and within even their own companies. The percentage of managers or above at Microsoft who didn't go to college, 1%. Here's a call from Courtney in Schenectady, New York now. Hello, Courtney. Hi, Jim. I actually do the same thing as Mr. Greenstein up here in the Capital District as we recover from the floods up here. And um, I have to take issue with him. I, I totally disagree with him. I'm an Ivy League graduate myself, former journalist, went into teaching after being in the corporate world. And i got to tell you right now, we need trade schools like it was in the 1950s. We need schools like Votech, like when I grew up in the 1980s, for kids that are going to be in mechanics or they're going to be plumbers. I have a friend of mine who's a plumber, took over his dad's business. He makes $250,000 a year. He's more successful than anybody I know from my class including myself in terms of income right now. So I disagree with that. Not every kid needs to go to college, and that's what's making this country, in my opinion, fall behind the rest of the world. We can no longer make anything, manufacture anything. It's all about ideas, and I think we're suffering as a result. And not every kid needs to go to college. And if you go well, no, to uh, but sorry. I was just going to say, I don't think anybody here has stated that every kid needs to go to college. Uh, just a, a response since it was addressed to Mark Greenstein, and then I want to hear Steve Olsher's response as well. But, but Mark, uh, I'm sure that you would, I, I assume, be the first to agree that we need a lot more people who are becoming competent mechanics, computer programmers, dentalists, hygienists, and uh, paralegals, and so on. Yes? Yes, I do. As a macro, that's nice. But I do believe that individuals have to act somewhat selfishly and so if you are predisposed to maybe getting a college degree hearing about a plumber who makes two hundred and fifty thousand a year without its college degree is a, a a monumentally bright but bad example this my guy is a clearly talented salesperson he's not getting so much income because of his plumbing skills but that plus business and that same person with a college degree might be making $500,000 a year. Yeah, I mean, but here, here are the facts, Jim, and the facts of the matter really lie in, in this, which is all the net job creation. I mean, literally all of the net job creation, this has been supported by various studies, is going to be in the information field, period. That is where our society is headed. We are moving away from a product driven society, which is a lot of what college was teaching you, which was how to do things in this product-oriented world, and really we're moving towards, and again, all the net job creation supports us, we're becoming an information-based society where ideas and, so and education is key. But colleges, well, colleges, are, colleges are doing that. that too, are they? Well, what colleges are doing is they're taking half of your money and half of your time and half of your energy and putting you in classes that you don't need. Why on earth would a business person need biology, chemistry, trigonometry, calculus, etc.? We have a we are, our our inherent our system here is inherently flawed. Our general education system has to be totally revamped. And again, I'm not against secondary education. I'm against a four-year degree where half of that time is spent in areas that are worthless to the people that get out of school. Okay, how about that? I guess this is really an assault, uh, Mark Greenstein, on the, the concept of the traditional liberal arts degree. In other words, uh, I guess what we've uh, reached now is the, the question of whether or not college is strictly for job uh, preparation, Mark. Well, it's a change in the premise from the show, and here with that change, I somewhat agree. 
Um, I do believe that going to college, you want to make the most of it, and it's very hard to economically make the most of it if you want to be a poet or a history major. So when in college, I do believe in pragmatics, study and do business, study and do science or computing, and you will end up better off, and you'll certainly end up better off than avoiding college and hoping to struggle in those fields on your own. All right, let's take a call from Kevin in Ozark, Alabama. Welcome to the Jim Bohannon Show with Steve Olsher and Mark Greenstein. How are you doing today, Jimbo? Very well. I got a scenario for, for, for your guest there. Um, I, I grew up and um, loved tinkering with everything, so um, Votech schools were the way for me. Um, and in the aviation field, you have apprentices, or you can go to a two-year degree. And uh, as far as that amount of money, they're talking about the plumber, um, those two-year degrees uh, guarantee you 100000 stateside easily for everybody who has those licenses or 250000 overseas. And um, that, 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 to me, in my type of uh, work, uh, there's college would, would be useless. Uh, it's all about experience. They can't possibly guarantee a $100,000 a year job. Everybody at everybody at where we work makes a hundred thousand dollars. Therefore, some Rutgers. people with those degrees do not get to where you work. I can't uh, believe that just minting that degree equals a hundred thousand dollar a year guaranteed offer. Well, look up look up uh, airframe and power plant licensing. It happens in Ozark, Alabama. It's required by the FAA, and that is a minimum. Um, anywhere you go is going to be thirty five dollars, forty dollars an hour just for that licensing. It's a two year degree. Yeah, and and just kind of going back to it for a second here, just bringing us back on 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 path, Jim. I mean, really, we're talking about, in my perspective, why college is the worst investment that a parent can make. And and ultimately, I mean, what ends up happening, and the statistics report just support this as well, is that mom and dad are going broke, sending kids to college, and the kid ends up with a degree in art history with a minor in pre-unemployment. I mean, we have to get these kids figuring out what it is they're they're compelled to do. I mean, I don't have a business that 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 makes money the way that Mark does. I give my book away for free. If you go to journeytoyou.com, you can get my book for free. So I'm not even selling anything. I just know that we have to look at a full revamp here on how we look at the educational system and whatever we're right. perpetuating uh, in this educational myth that we're encouraging our kids to follow. Steve, More to come, one eight six six five zero Jimbo, one eight six six five zero five four six two six, including Mark Greenstein's response when we come back after these messages. Thank you for being with us on the Jim Bohannon Show. We're talking tonight with educator Mark Greenstein and Steve Olsher, America's reinvention expert. And, uh, Mark, uh, your response to uh, what uh, Steve had been talking about, about uh, parents going broke, uh, paying for this uh, misdirected time in, in uh, college. Well, they might be going broke paying for their kid to uh, work a minimum wage job in retail or food service. And... <laughs> they they are less likely to get a, a payback when that student doesn't get an advanced degree and, and has a much harder time, I'm not saying impossible, but a much harder time landing a professional job with a professional salary that he'll you know get him 
out of mom's couch <laughs> and on his yeah, you own. Know, you, know, you know, Brad, I, I, pardon me, uh, Brad's our next caller, which we'll go right to here, but Steve Olsher, uh, it, it does seem to me that, that all of this experience that we're talking about is great if, in fact, you're fortunate enough to land a, an entry-level gig in something that leads to where you want to go. But I, I don't see much that is gained by just, again, being uh, the stock boy or, or uh, uh, what have you, uh, saying, uh, would you like fries with that? doesn't seem to me a very productive amount of time to, to spend on leading you to a meaningful career, unless you get the right, quote, experience, unquote. Right. And, and, then I don't see the not, point. Yeah, and not at all what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is that people have to discover what I call your what. You have to be able to answer the question, what is your what? What is that one thing that your soul is compelled to do? Because once you can answer that question, everything else falls into place. And that is what comes from life experience, from getting out of that just restricted circle where so many people are right now and seeing what the options and opportunities are that exist in the world. And there's a lot of different ways to get to that answer without having to flip burgers and toss fries in a bag. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we just need better high school counselors or more of them. Brad is on the road near Johnstown, Ohio tonight. Good evening, Brad. Hi. How are you guys doing tonight? All Very right. Well, thank you. Okay. My question was, uh, is the question whether or not you have a college degree, is that really the question to be asked? And I wonder if maybe the issue isn't whether or not the people have the personal drive to do something with it or without it. Bill Gates didn't need it because he had drive. Some people that get a college degree really succeed because they have drive. I think maybe sometimes uh, people with a college degree that don't succeed are sitting back expecting the degree to do the job, and the degree isn't what does it. It still takes personal drive that I think a lot of people are lacking, and maybe that's the real issue. Yeah, not the college degree or no college degree. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly because what we're talking about here, when you talk about drive, is being compelled to do something, and that, in fact, is the rub here, where people just have to look at the equation in a much different manner. Which is, once you figure out what that is, you're then fired up to pursue it. But instead, well, maybe you are. Some people don't get that fired up. You know, if we could just clone uh, Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs and make sure that all the new babies in the country were born that way, that would be no, great no, no, uh, for many of the. Many of the lesser human beings out there who, in fact, do comprise our next generation of, of workers and citizens. I'm not sure that necessarily is true. Uh, Mark Greenstein. Steve, I'm going to give you my favorite way of discovering what is your what. Four years of college, where <laughs> as opposed to a single job where you're exposed to a limited set of people and a limited set of skills, you are going to have the opportunity to work with many professors and many students. Uh, many students from different walks of life, some of them might be the sons of bankers who can get you another job once you get out of college. Your roommate might be the, the uh, son of some other politician who can get you into a new type of yeah. the network. The network is certainly a lot better. The networking is a lot better. Years early in life, it allows students to A, discover, and B, pursue once they have something that they want to pursue far better than any other experience. Okay, response from Steve and then another call. Yeah, I mean, but the reality is when you come out of school, you're still looking at some very painful numbers. The median salary coming out of school, not for your little Ivy Leaguers that you got there, Mark, but you're talking about the average, the average college right now, 30K is the average salary. Median debt after college, 20K. U.S. savings rate less than 0%, let's assume 5%, maybe 1500 a year. It's going to take them over 13 years to pay that off. It's a bad use of funds. It doesn't make any sense for the majority of kids to go to school right out of high school. 
to Sharon in Crane, Missouri. And hello, Sharon. Welcome. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. I have not heard either of your speakers talk about the dignity of work or the satisfaction that there is in doing a good job. Amen. I, I can tell you right now, uh, you're always going to need the guy that picks up your garbage because when you're neck deep in it, you're not going to be calling a rocket scientist to come <laughs> and pick up your trash. You're not going to be calling uh, some lawyer to come and clean the urinals in your offices. And I really, really think that maybe there is a snobbery here that is permeating education not everyone is going to go to college. and That's true. Not everyone is going to, although uh, ignoring your two examples for the moment, which will probably be around for a while, but a lot of these jobs are frankly going to be automated out of existence in the next 50 to 100 years. Uh, but uh, Mark Greenstein, well, I is there snobbery involved here? Many, I, I don't think very many parents want their children to be cleaning urinals or, or, or being sanitation engineers. And while that is worthwhile work, I'm not sure it is necessarily that to which we should aspire, frankly, Sharon. I mean, I no one puts it down. No one puts it down. Do but it shouldn't we aim God. for higher than I, that? I, 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 I'm not I saying that you that should not aim higher. I think that everyone, everyone should uh, aspire and reach as high as they can or want to. But I, I really don't like to... I see too much of this, um, where people, they, you can take a person. Okay, this is an example, just an example. Okay, brief uh, example, and then the response from Mr. Greenstein. Okay. Go ahead. All right. At one time, in order to support myself after I was divorced, I worked three jobs, and I worked as a janitorial person in a very large, very cheechy department store. Mm -hmm. When I was out on that floor in a uniform, I was invisible. But when I took that uniform off and walked out on the floor just like any other customer, all of a sudden I was recognized as a human being. People need to realize there are people out there doing jobs that you don't want to do but are necessary. And they, the, the dignity of the work is they do the job and they do it well and they make our lives comfortable for us. Fair enough, and I don't think anyone here would really argue with that, but uh, since that's primarily aimed at Mr. Greenstein, go ahead briefly, then we'll pause. Well, people who have the choice to do one job and not be forced to do three jobs, I think most of them would feel that's a better alternative. And like it or not, college tends to give you that alternative far more frequently right. than hard-knock life in your early 20s. More to come. We'll be back. Welcome back to the Jimbo Hannon Show. We're talking about the value of a college education with America's reinvention expert Steve Olsher, educator Mark Greenstein, and Linda in Kennewick, Washington. Hello. Hello. I'm a little conflicted about what all you're saying tonight because I have a college degree. I'm a registered nurse. My sisters and my nieces and nephews have college degrees, and they're all teachers. And we are not making a lot of money at any of these professions, but yet we all have our degrees. And 
and I think there's some dichotomy or something. I don't know exactly the right word to use in the whole system of looking at college degrees and and the big salaries and and doing what we want to do. Because as a registered nurse, I've been one for 45 years, and I'm I'm thrilled with doing that. But money is not fair, even with my degrees. Well, but, but, but are you saying what is it's worth more than just the, the? In other words, job satisfaction is worth something as well as just the money. I think is, is so. I okay. Think. All right. We've got about a okay. Very good. About a minute to go here. Uh, let's start with uh, Steve Olsher. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you want to live like a thief. I mean, that's that's the idea here. Is you want to find what it is that you're compelled to do. Do it. And the money is part of the equation, but it's not the whole equation. You want to feel like, you know, you're really living life in terms of how you want to live it, and you have a special gift to share. And ultimately, each of us needs to figure out what that gift is. Again, if you go to journeytoyou.com, you can get a free copy of the book. So please do. All right. Very good. Mark Greenside. Well, I do want people to recognize that we are moving towards the stage where graduate school is going to become the college of 20 years ago. So the truly top earnings and maybe that equal satisfaction in a lot of cases, um, they are ratcheting higher. It does mean the person who gets off that ladder and chooses not to go to college has no chance at grad school. There are All right, zero very good. Lawyers. We're going to have to wrap on that note. Both of you, please stay on the line. Again, uh, educator Mark Greenstein and America's reinvention expert Steve Olsher, our guests on the Jim Bohannon Show. With more to come, back here at Westwood One. Welcome to the Jimbo Hannon Show from Westwood One Radio. We are at 1-866-50-JIMBO, 1-866-505-4626. Online, you'll find us at jimbotalk.net, more about which here in a moment. But uh, great to have you with us on the program tonight, and we thank you very much for uh, joining us this evening. Had some uh, interesting uh, discussions, I felt, uh, in the program. Looking ahead uh, to this coming evening, Andrew Biggs of the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research will be taking a look at uh, Congress, member salaries, and the question, are they worth it? Hmm. An interesting thought. And uh, that's our first hour this coming evening, Wednesday, the, uh, the 31th of August. Uh, the month is uh, disappearing as we're sliding into the Labor Day weekend. And uh, the second hour on uh, this coming evening, We'll talk with the former host of the newlywed game, Bob Eubanks, who was also a former disc jockey in this radio business and has done a lot of different things, uh, music promotion. Uh, Bob's a pretty talented guy, a sort of a, a renaissance media dude, if you will. Uh, so Bob Newbanks of the newlywed game will talk about his career. And in particular, I will have to ask him about all the stuff that was too racy to make it on the air. Given some of the stuff that they allowed on the newlywed game, I have got to hear a little bit more, maybe just a little bit more, about the stuff that didn't make it. That was a, that was a fun show, if you never saw that. one eight six six five zero jimbo one eight six six five zero five four six two six. 5426 Ed O'Neill has gotten a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Los Angeles. O'Neill, of course... Uh, uh, perhaps most famous for uh, 
uh, being unmarried with children and also uh, with uh, ABC's uh, Modern, two of his uh, more uh, well-known roles, I suppose. Uh, in fact, he appeared actually with his two TV wives, Sophia Vergara from Modern and Katie Segal from uh, Married with Children. And, and th- this is wonderful. I-, I have to assume that they planned this. It is just too perfect for them not to have planned this. Ed O'Neill's star is right in front of a DSW shoe store on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> That's wonderful. And uh, O'Neill, in his acceptance of his star, said, Just think, somewhere in this world, a baby girl is being born, and she's going to be my next wife. Uh, a little reference to his uh, TV wives. Uh, Vigara, 26 years, his junior, and uh, Katie Segal, 11. O'Neill, by the way, for the record, Al Bundy, is 65 now and uh, attended Ohio University and Youngstown State. Some of you, uh, particularly listening to us over News Radio 1020 KDKA, may be aware of this fact. He was signed by the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was a defensive back, but he was cut in training camp. And they went on to teach social studies before his uh, his acting career. But Ed O'Neill was a fair football player in his day. So there you go, Ed O'Neill with his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Good for Ed. Very talented dude. Very talented uh, fellow indeed. If you go to JimboTalk.net, you can click on Jimbo near you and find out where all I'm going to be near you. Mentioned uh, our listeners in KDKA land, uh, News Radio 1020 in Pittsburgh, and. Uh, Coming up on uh, Labor Day, I will, of course, be doing this program as always, laboring. In fact, double laboring, because I will also, on that day in Pittsburgh only, be filling in for Mike Pentec in his noon to 3 p.m. show on Monday. And uh, that'll be good fun. Always enjoy the chance to occasionally uh, fill in at uh, KDKA. Also, uh, that, that, of course, is at uh, Jimbo Near You at JimboTalk.net. Coming up on uh, a week from Saturday, September the 10th, I'll be uh, taking part uh, as a volunteer in Delaney's Drive for Diabetes. It is a golf tournament being held at the trails at Chickasaw Point in Westminster, South Carolina. All of you uh, people listening to us uh, over stations such as uh, WSNW in Seneca, South Carolina, or uh, WLMA in uh, Greenwood, South Carolina, I'll be at the uh, trails at Chickasaw Point as a volunteer to help raise money for a juvenile diabetes research. That'll be on Saturday, the 10th of September, with an 11 a.m. shotgun start. You can learn more about either uh, participating or, or uh, watching or contributing. Just go to uh, the website golfthetrails.com, G-O-L-F-T-H-E-T-R-A-I-L-S, golfthetrails.com. Very worthwhile. Visitors, should they wear their hard hats? A good question. I would suggest that that's a distinct possibility, uh, although I will not be swinging a golf club. I will merely be watching this particular event. So, yes, I'd say a hard hat is a, is a, probably not a bad idea. Uh, they've got some pretty good golfers play at the trails, but then again, they've got some uh, some duffers who play there as well, so it should be a lot of fun. should be a lot of fun. There you go, right there. I think that went about uh, 18 yards. One eight six six five zero Jimbo one eight six six five zero five four six two six. Our poll at JimboTalk.net last week we asked you about uh, the NATO action in Libya. Should that prompt a similar action by NATO in Syria, and should the U.S. back such an effort? 
Well, no ambiguity on your part there. We've had some uh, split polls in recent weeks, but uh, not this time. 76% of you say no, the U.S. should have no role in Syria, including in support of NATO. Uh, 17% of you say, uh, yes, Libya was proof NATO air power can be effective. 5% said, uh, no, the U.S. should take a more direct military role. 2% yes, and NATO forces should also include ground troops. So uh, pretty strong views there that, no, that would not be the best uh, policy for the U.S. to go. This week, we're asking you about some of the natural disasters out there, tornadoes, mudslides, flooding, and more with the earthquake uh, that recently struck in the east and, of course, the, the hurricane, which uh, came right up the east coast. Are you prepared, should a natural disaster strike where you live? Are you prepared, should a natural disaster strike where you live? Just go to jimbotalk.net and click on our poll, and your choices are yes, and I have a full emergency kit at the ready. I hope that has a high number, but if you're honest, I doubt that it does. Or, I'm fairly ready, but I could do more. Or, I've taken a few precautions, but nothing significant. Or, no, I haven't made any disaster preparations at all. I cringe at the thought of how big that one may be. And as we talked a bit the, the other night uh, on the air, it's important to keep in mind that we are, after all, um, in a state of, of constant updating for our preparedness. It does no good to have an emergency kit where you've got, let's say, uh, water that's evaporated or gone uh, rancid, or you've got food that is no longer fit to eat, or you've got uh, batteries that no longer have any charge. Those emergency kits need to be constantly updated. But uh, 1-866-50-JIMBO is our number here, and uh, JimboTalk.net is the location where you can uh, give us your results on, on the poll about how prepared you are should a natural disaster strike where you live. Looking at some of those disasters, I have to ask, we keep hearing about all the people, of course, who do the stupid things, especially the people who, of course, ignore the uh, hurricane warnings, this sort of thing. Have you ever done anything regarding a natural disaster that was really stupid in your view? Ever raced to a beach where they're expecting a tsunami just to watch the show? Ever decided that you were going to get in uh, some surfing on some really good waves as the uh, hurricane was approaching? Ever uh, gone out and, uh, and chased a tornado without knowing what you were doing? Or having a really good reason, since I have chased one, and didn't know what I was doing, but I was being paid by a radio station to do so. I'm not sure if it was that good a reason. They weren't paying me that much. But but anyway, I'm just curious about that. Uh, if you've uh, ever done something that was really lame that you could look back on, or, or maybe it was bragging rights. Maybe you don't think it was lame at all. Maybe it's 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 the great story you always get to tell. Maybe it was macho bragging rights, one eight six six five O jimbo one eight six six five O five four six two six. I'm just curious about whether or not you ever did anything really stupid regarding natural disasters. Ever ever run to one, like, uh, oh, like a wildfire. I, I can recall, if you've never, by the way, been in a wildfire, they are really hot. I mean, you have no idea. I can recall once... Uh, uh, being at the scene of what was a fairly small fire. I mean, this thing probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 acres. 
but hot, I mean debilitating hot, just enough to make you wilt. I've never been so hot in my life. I mean, it made, a, it made a hot summer day, which that was, by the way, seem positively refreshing just to get a, maybe a 100 yards away from it, and it felt cool, relatively speaking. So uh, I'm just curious about that. If you've ever done anything really, really lame slash brave in regard to a natural disaster, one eight six six five zero Jimbo one eight six six five zero five four six two six. You may confess and or boast, whatever, whatever turns you on. One eight six six five zero five four six two six one eight six six five zero Jimbo on the Jimbo Hannon show. We will pause briefly and be back after these messages. Thank you for being with us on the Jimbo Hannon Show at one eight six six five zero Jimbo one eight six six five zero five four six two six. Have you ever gone up to Mother Nature and essentially slapped her across the chops and said, "I dare you, hurt me"? One eight six six five zero Jimbo one eight six six five zero five four six two six. Let's talk to Brian in uh, Jamestown, New York. Hello, Brian. Oh. So, what have you done? Well, last year when we had the tornado go through western New York, uh, we were out four-wheeling up by my mother's, and we went out on this big hill because we could see it go through the valley and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the lightning storm started, and it hit our whip antenna and blew all four tires out of my truck. Whoa! Mmm! Uh, where were you guys when this happened? We were sitting in the truck. You were in the truck. Now, actually, that's not one, not a bad place to be. If you've got to be hit by lightning, I suppose being in a vehicle like that, well, I guess you're the proof of the pudding. You're you're here, right? But you shouldn't have your 20-foot shortwave antenna up. Good call. Yes, sir. <laughs> Although, were you at the absolute top of the uh, of of the, of the hillside? The biggest hill. So I'm not. I'm not given given the the body of your uh, of your truck being metal there. I, I'm not sure that the antenna made that much difference. You were still the highest point plus metal. I mean, well, uh, that was we were insulated, but the you know seventy thousand volts or can jump quite a distance. It can jump quite a distance. People don't uh, don't stop and think about that. But you're right. Uh, it's uh, uh, the voltage can can leap, uh, and you're talking about a lot more voltage than, for example, when you walk across a carpet on a on a cold uh, uh, morning and and uh, touch a doorknob. This is a considerably greater amount of electricity. But uh, yeah, you might have thought more about that. How close did you get to the tornado? Uh, we were probably within a half a mile or so. It went right through the town where we had just left. Wow. And uh, it. Actually, yeah, the lightning burned the holes right through all four of the tires. What about the radio? Was it gone? Smoked the whole truck. Electronic. Wow. It was. I still have it, but I'm working on it. It's. I still haven't got it completely repaired. <laughs> Sounds like a paperweight at this stage. All right, there's Brian, who uh, turned himself into a lightning rod. Okay, uh, that's probably not recommended. One eight six six five zero Jimbo. One eight six six five zero five four six two six. What have you done that uh, maybe in retrospect wasn't the smartest way to deal with crises posed by our environment? Uh, Less in Steel, Missouri. Hello. How you doing tonight? I'm fine, thank you. Just sitting here trying to imagine sitting in a truck that has become a lightning rod. A uh, diesel truck going down the road weighing 80,000 pounds in a tornado is just nothing but fun. 
I oh, I bet that's uh, fun. Yeah, Six Flags would charge a lot for that ride. <laughs> Actually, I could get six or eight people in here if they want to just join me. I love uh, I, lo- I love just running into the to the lightning bank when you see the clouds pulling around the corner, and you see the flash and you see the the winds growing, and you're just heading up the hill. I, I come out of Meridian, Mississippi, uh, on this last one, the one that came across from Joplin, Missouri, and came oh, up yeah. in the Mississippi and up there. I, I went all the way from uh, Meridian to McCall, uh, 90 mile an hour winds. Uh, hanging on the left-hand shoulder. My my truck was at a 45-degree angle. I had my windows down. I had my arm out the window, and the hair stood up on the side of my arm every time the lightning flashed. It's not that I'm crazy, and it's not that I'm insane. It's just that I have my camera on my dashboard, and I have 600 hours of lightning storms, uh, tornadoes, uh, hurricanes. I was, I was sitting down in, uh, I, I-10 going eastbound across Mobile when the bridge fell 300, uh, 300 feet in front of me. The bridge fell and all the cars just disappeared. I was sitting at a dead stop and I have it on film and I've, I've already uh, processed all that. Uh, I'm, I have, all I'm the, curious about one all, thing here. Uh, do, do you seek this out, or or or, or <laughs> is your name I, is your nickname Lucky? <laughs> no, actually, it's Joker, and that's Lester Joseph Kerr. They they call me Joker. I guess I'm the foolish card in the deck. I always get a load. Uh, I was I was I was in the middle of nowhere, going nowhere, just sitting for a day or two. And I picked up a load going to Washington State two years ago when they had the worst snowstorm that they've ever had in the history of Washington. But I had a wide load oversize. And I pull into town there, and the DOT pulled up alongside of me, in front of me, and behind me, and took me to the TA truck stop and told me that's where I was going to sit for the next six days. It snowed on me, 44 inches of snow on my truck. I stepped out of my truck onto a snowbank and sunk clear to my knees and walked to the truck stop. This is just what happens to me. I just end up in the right place at the wrong time. (laughs) Well, all I can say is, Les, that your nickname ought to be lucky. It really should be. That's amazing. Uh, That's remarkable. Unbelievable, my man. Let's take a call from Paul in Eureka, California now at one eight six six five zero jimbo And hello, Paul. Welcome. Hey. Hi, Jimbo. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Good. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid living here in Northern California, we used to go out uh, to this little park at the end of our neighborhood and get up on those big old metal slides they used to have when we were kids and watch the lightning storms come in off the bay. And uh, I looked over at my friend one time, and all of the hair on his head was standing up, and he had a really scared look on his face. He said, my hair was standing up, too. We thought it was probably a good time to get off those slides. Good call. Good call. Yeah. Uh, you did, obviously, you're still here. Uh, did, did the lightning subsequently hit in that area? Um, you know, it, they never hit the slide that we were on, but the big metal barn, there's a, the field that we were looking over was a big dairy. And the big metal barn that was sitting out there would get hit four or five times in an hour, and that's why we'd sit up there and watch it. 
the flashlight and the, the, the colors that would come off the, that uh, sheet metal roof was amazing when the lightning would start hitting it. Uh, do you have kids of your own? I'm curious. I do. I do. I've got yeah. a, a daughter that's married now, and I have a 14-year-old son. All right. If you saw your son do what you did, what would you do or say to that son? I I think I would just I think I just have a heart attack, you know, uh, because it, <laughs> it just it seems like you know the things that we used to do as a kid seem so harmless then, and now we look at it and think, how in the hell did I survive? You really, know? you stop and think uh, about that. Yeah, yeah, it is remarkable. Yeah, I so my, I have to. They're a little bit smarter than me because I tell them all the stories when I, from when I was a kid. <laughs> that's too wild. All right, uh, that, that's 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 wild stuff, Paul. Uh, how many of you out there have done things like this? I'm just curious. What was the the dumbest or bravest thing you've ever done like this? I remember when Lee Trevino, the golfer, was hit by lightning on a golf course, and when he finally recovered and came back, and they asked him what he would do if, in fact, uh, he saw lightning start up again, and he said, "I would walk right down the middle of the fairway, holding aloft a one iron, because even God can't hit a one iron." We'll be back at Westwood One. Welcome back to the Jimbo Hannon Show. One eight six six five zero Jimbo. One eight six six five zero five four six two six. When you were young and stupid, or really brave, ever did anything? If you ever did anything at all that was was questionable in terms of judgment, especially about things like nature, we've had some some sterling examples of that tonight. I'm just curious about that. I, I got, of course, mostly male calls, which which I expected, because there's something I don't know. If, if, if the Y chromosome just automatically has that, uh, that, that, that stupid side to it, I don't know. Uh, but have any of you women out there ever, uh, ever done anything questionable as regards uh, hurricanes or tornadoes or fires or mudslides and the like? Uh, it seems principally to be, I would think, a preoccupation of the young. You don't hear about uh, people of... Uh, age and maturity doing stuff like this or maybe we're just chicken i don't know maybe we're maybe we're just chicken i'm not sure uh but for the record i did uh many many years ago in fact i was um, i was 22 at the time 22 at the time working at kwto radio in springfield missouri which is carrying the program right now and on the orders of the news director at the time, Milton D. Peters, one of the great broadcast journalists of our time, uh, or, or at least that time, uh, sent me out, find that tornado, which was rampaging through Greene County, Missouri. And it was dark. It was dark. And so I went out looking for this, this tornado, which is harder to find than you might think. And I knew I was never going to see it because it was pitch black. And, of course, whether there was a moon out or not, you couldn't see anything because of the clouds. So I knew the only way I was going to find this tornado was by listening for it. So I had the window rolled down because I couldn't see it. I mean, that, that funnel cloud could be towering above me. I would, not, I would not see it. I'd be heading right straight for it. I had to listen, which I do not recommend, by the way. 
this was my reasoning at the time. I do, don't think this is the, the appropriate course of action to follow. But I did. And, and of course, the rain was coming, not down, I was going to say coming down. It was coming down, it was coming sideways, straight into my car. My car actually was filled with water. Not a great car, fortunately. Was no no better certainly after that night. Had to bail it out. I mean, this wound up. I, I actually used a, a, a little uh, coffee mug kind of thing to to bail it out, and then ultimately applied towels to to soak up the the water. I did not find the tornado. I'm happy to report, or I might not even be here tonight. But I did. I did get some great eyewitness tape. I did, and. Uh, in retrospect, I don't know. Would I do that today? Well, I don't know. It was my job. Yeah, I would today if it was my job. That's the only reason. Uh, Charles in Akron, Ohio at one eight six six five zero jimbo Hello, Charles. Hi, Jimbo. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Just uh, having a little confessional here in which I admitted my own uh, meteorological stupidity. Well, I have to admit that, you know, it, it goes beyond just natural phenomenon. You could go with uh, the, the physics of nature itself. Um, well, that's I had a, a chance, sir, uh, as a child, to play with an earth ball. Do you know what an earth ball is? I don't know what an earth ball is, no. Okay. It's, um, it's an approximately eight feet tall, uh, basically rubber, uh, plasticized uh, ball filled with air. Mm. Uh, and what we would do, would we would deflate it to about two-thirds of the air pressure inside. So it was kind of deflated, you know. And we yeah. would roll it up against the uh, back garage of my parents' house, um, and we would climb the back roof of my parents' house. <laughs> and uh, from the apex of the house, we would jump butt-first into this giant earth ball. And... Um, <laughs> We would, I mean, you have to understand that the, the process was that as you fell into it, you were like, ah, and then you would be have a cushion of air, and then all that pressure would build and then catapult you 30, 35 feet into the neighbor's yard. Uh, which, fortunately, the neighbor's yard was made of foam rubber, right? Oh, actually. Uh, no, it was made of hard-packed kind of earth. <laughs> No, my neighbor, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gross, they had a uh, lawn that was like uh, uh, heather. It was it was tall grass that just uh, was very soft and and uh, you know at that age you're invulnerable, of course. And uh, oh yes, <laughs> you 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 were actually Wiley Coyote, oh, and, and the, the, the part uh, of the Acme Footsprings right. was played by but played by this ground ball. <laughs> And, and, and it was, you know, the, the earth ball was made by Acme Incorporated, and uh, we would just bounce uh, pot first into the air and catapult ourselves trying to catch the rug runner. <laughs> so I mean, as a story, fun. that's funny. Now, I must ask you, do you do you have have children, Charles? Yes, yes. Uh, and if you uh, saw one of them doing this, what would you do or say? Uh... I would have to say, don't pull a, uh, a Tom Godfrey. Um, he unfortunately hit the uh, earth ball at an angle. Oh. And um, he hit one of the 
uh, tall, uh, thin trees at about, uh, it was an odd angle, but he hit it about 25 feet up, and then he slid straight down and got second and third degree burns down his inside uh, tract um, because he hugged the tree. Ooh, not so good. But he did learn a little geometry. The angle of incidence equals the angle of reflection. He learned that. (laughs) And I'm telling you, uh, velocity vectors do count. Oh, merciful heavens! Oh, that's uh, that, that. Now that now that now that of course of course uh, it takes into account another of uh, Mother Nature's little proclivities called gravity. Yes, that's amazing. And, and, so you're, you're talking about nature's uh, proclivities. Well, this is a matter of sheer physics. So I thought that this would apply. Oh, he very much applies. Absolutely. All right. Very good. Charles did play the part, actually played the part of Wiley Coyote, in which the ground ball played the part of the Acme Footsprings and uh, lived to tell the tale, although, as you heard, his, his friend obviously uh, did suffer a certain amount of pain. Well, I've done some, some stupid things like that uh, myself uh, over the years. One of the dumbest things, I suppose, that I ever did as a kid, uh, we had uh, a clothesline in my backyard. Uh, this was uh, the days before clothes dryers, okay, uh, boys and girls. So uh, my mother either would hang the clothing in the basement or outside on the clothes line, which was hung up by poles, which in our case, the clothesline pole was created by uh, someone had taken uh, iron tubes, probably about, I don't know, three inches in diameter, and they just welded them into a T. So you put the post in the ground, and then the T supported three closed lines in which my mother would hang the wash to dry. The crossbar, the T, was open. And I figured that would make a dandy cannon, which, as it turned out, it did, actually. And now we've we've gotten into another area of, I suppose, uh, uh... uh, nature's proclivities, which would be in this case that uh, certain substances, when set afire, tend to produce a great deal of pressure, namely uh, M80s and cherry bombs. So on the 4th of July, since this uh, particular clothesline T-bar pointed at uh, our neighbor's house across the back alley, I would fill that end with, uh, well, grape shot, basically, gravel in this particular case. I made it into a shotgun, filled that in with gravel. The back end, I would place the cherry bomb, and I had put together a most interesting way to close the the breach of the cannon, if you will. I had uh, taken a coffee can and attached it to a two-by-four so that the coffee can is sitting right on the end there with the handle coming out of the closed end of the coffee can, and so I could take that handle and I could push it up against the open end of that pole, and it would, it would close it. The coffee can would, would actually surround the pole and, and, and would lock the breach on the cannon, if you will. So you have the gravel in the one end, you put uh, the cherry bomb on the other end, you light the cherry bomb and promptly close it off with that coffee can on the 2x4. And uh, worked really well. It uh, showered the neighbor's house with gravel. I am so happy to inform you that, uh, no, it did not actually break any of the glass at all. But uh, suffice it to say, one eight six six five zero jimbo is the number, one eight six six five zero five four six two six, And it will be back after these messages.
Welcome back to the Jimbo Hannon Show at one eight six six five zero Jimbo. Our engineer Bill Pimble has chimed in here and informed us that among other things that he's done, you know, he's an engineer. I mean, what do you expect? He has cut across a live AC line and he has placed a battery, which is direct current, not alternating, on his tongue. <laughs> Uh, all right, Moise in Meridian, Mississippi. Welcome to the Jimbo Hannon Show. Yeah, how are you doing? Well, I'm, uh, I'm fine, and I guess judging by the conversation, it's a miracle we're both still alive. But what did you do? <laughs> yes, well, many crazy things. Uh, most of it was playing chicken. Uh, one oh. thing was we would, uh, my buddies and I, when we were kids, would go out at night and we would lie down in the middle of the street on an S curve, and when the we would see the headlights of the car coming around the corner, we'd jump up and run to the sidewalk. And of course, the first one uh, would do that would be chicken. And, oh, uh, oh man! <laughs> now I have to admit this this may take the trophy for the evening. <laughs> that is just unbelievable. And another one we would do, uh, of course, was kind of dangerous. We would go to the railroad track. Oh, as opposed track. to the first one. Okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, uh, we would go to the railroad track, and each uh, we would have two of us at a time. One would stand on one of the rails and another on the other rail, and we would start walking when we would see a train coming, and we would walk on the rail, and the first one that would jump off before the train hit us was chicken. So, <laughs> That was... <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I just have to know, how old were you when you did these things? Oh, we were in elementary school. Like, oh, well. Like sixth, seventh grade, you know. Okay, well, I guess that, all right, that's getting up there, but uh, okay, I'm just, just checking, Moise. All right. <laughs> wow. Uh, Audrey in uh, St. James, Missouri. I was looking for uh, a little feminine contribution to this, and so uh, we'll, I think we'll make you an honorary guy, Audrey. Go ahead. Okay. Well, okay. when I was young, I was going to school, and I started driving, and I was in South Dakota, and it was in the winter, and uh, I got about 40 miles, and it started to blizzard, but I drove another 100 miles in the blizzard on the road. I was only car on the road. There was no visibility at all. I got Because everybody home. else had figured out this was a, a bad idea, everybody but Audrey. Yeah, I wasn't even sure I was on the road, actually. But I, I was in the interstate, and it was real wide, you know. And I finally got home, and then when I got home, uh, the storm had died down a little bit, so I went another 30 miles to see my friends and party, and there wasn't very many people out there. <laughs> you know, I did something similar to that. Uh, I was, uh, well, I was... I was quite grown. Geez, uh, when I did this, uh, we're talking, uh, I was uh, 40 or 50-something. Uh, some friends of mine had a wedding planned, and the wedding, uh, a monster snowstorm. Uh, Washington, D.C. doesn't get a lot of monster snowstorms, but this thing was a killer. I mean, it probably three feet of snow. And and But I, I knew where the, the wedding was going to be, and by golly, I went there. And mm -hmm. when I got there... Nobody else was there, and I was right. amazed at this. And so I took a picture, actually, of the church, and then I, I knew where the, the wedding party was staying. I went to their hotel, which, of course, is where they stayed, and that's where they had the, the uh, wedding and the reception. Everything was in the hotel. But their wedding album, the only picture they have of their church was the one I took. Wow. So I, 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 have, I have done similar things, Audrey, and I think we're both, we're both a little bit off, off the, 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 the beaten path there. That, that, that was not smart of either one of us. 
I was 19 when I did that, and I've done some things since then, but I'm 60 now. I'm nothing quite like that again. Well, there you go. Audrey has grown up, ladies and gentlemen. We'll pass that along to all of her friends. All right. Well, that yes, you are an honorary guy, definitely, Audrey. Uh, Rich in Rochester, New York, on the Jim Bohannon Show. Good evening. Uh, well, I can't go next because there ain't no next. James in Canton, Ohio. Good evening, James. How are you doing tonight, Jumbo? I'm fine, thank you. Well, uh, back in the days before kids played video games all the time, we used to, all, all the kids in my neighborhood, about 20, 30 of us, would uh, meet up at a uh, soccer field by our house and play backyard football. No pads or anything, you know, like we used to do. But we had a little uh, advantage. Uh, we the offense would be given a small trampoline. <laughs> we did this. For about, uh, <laughs> we, we did this for about, I think, five or six weeks. Every Saturday morning, you know, all the kids just knew to go to go just meet up the soccer field at ten o'clock, start picking teams. Well, one of the kids brought us, you know, small trampoline. We used it for about five weeks, and the goal, the thing was, the offense got it, and they get to put it behind whatever you know hole they wanted behind the tackle or the you know behind the guard they get to move it before the play and then they had the option of you know pitching the ball and running back running back to hit the trampoline and jump over the pile <laughs> now that's remarkable that really is uh, yeah I, I played in such games we didn't think of the trampoline part but i played in a cow pasture in fact i, I played in uh, william moore's cow pasture in park manor in lebanon missouri and and i mean there. I'll put it this way: uh, there were rocks everywhere. I mean, it was it was just a minefield, and nobody ever suffered anything more than a scratch. Ever, no broken bones, nothing. But we never thought of the, of the trampoline. That that really would have added a lot to our game. Well, we uh, actually, what happened was, is uh, uh, one of the kids was you know was twice as big as everybody else, the same age, but just one of those big kids and. Uh, well, he caught you coming over that line. Well, we had one kid break two ribs one week, and then uh, the next week a kid got a broken arm from it. So that was about weeks four and five. And after that, our parents were kind of like, all right, that's enough of the trampoline. So. <laughs> oh, man. Too much. Oh, that, that, that's, that's wild. That, that is cool. We should have thought of the trampoline because they had those little, little trampolines back then. Uh, but I, but I never thought about that. Gee whiz. Oh. But we we did some some amazingly stupid things. That was where in William Moore's pasture in Lebanon, Missouri. William Moore today, by the way, is a Methodist minister in Springfield, Missouri. But uh, there was a guy named John Stretch, big dude, Johnny Stretch, and uh, of course, naturally, when you play football, the ball moves, right? You know, play progresses, the ball changes position, and, and one day someone referred to the ball being at the line of scrimmage. Johnny Stretch said. With great insight, he said, hey, a couple of minutes ago, the line of scrimmage was over there. We had to explain that concept to him. Oh, well, we've gone from uh, strictly uh, defying acts of nature to just defying common sense in its entirety. But thank you all. Uh, since we sell this program in part demographically, I want you to know that uh, we have undoubtedly increased our sales among uh, idiots uh, 25 to 54. More to come. We'll be back here at Westwood One. Thanks for being with us on the Jimbo Hannon Show at 186650 Jimbo as we kind of t took a look at some of our 
walking on the wild side here tonight. Uh, Patty uh, calls in from Murraysville, Pennsylvania, by the way. Hello, Patty. Hello there, Jim. Yes. Uh, hello? Yeah, you're on the radio. Go right ahead. Oh. Okay, I'm sorry. It was a little quiet there. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, yeah, there's six of us in my family, and, uh, well, we, uh, we were little, little kids, you know, still different. I mean, I wasn't even in school yet, and we liked playing follow the leader, you know. Yeah. And uh, it uh, it ended up climbing out the second floor window and dancing around on the rooftop of the house. Uh, <laughs> the, what, this yeah. wasn't a flat roof, was it? Oh, no. No, it's it, it, was... it was a full room-length dormer with a extended part of the roof that we would climb up all the way to the very top, and we'd be dancing around up there, and... There'd be live wires, you know, for power connecting to the house, to the main, you know. And uh, wow. my mother caught us up there, and uh, she practically had a heart attack. <laughs> well, I can understand why that might have been the case. I can oh, understand yeah. that. Uh, we will, we will, we will, we will, we thank you for that call, and I will wrap this segment by simply saying, do not try this at home. Oh, please, do not try this at home. All right, very good. Uh, Glad to have you all with us tonight. Again, be sure to go to JimboTalk.net. Click on our poll. We were asking tonight whether or not you are prepared for a natural disaster to strike where you live. And just go to the poll and click right there. Our producer and webmaster is Paul Hill. Our engineer tonight, well, that would be Bill Pimble. I'm Jimbo Hannon, and this is Westwood One.